Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a sage publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. To set the stage for today's discussion, on incident response effectiveness. Let me share with you some important stats and facts. According to a 2023 IBM report, companies take 197 days to identify a breach and 69 days on an average to contain one breach. The delay between infection, detection, and containment can cost businesses millions of dollars. Companies that can contain a breach in less than 30 days can save more than a million dollars compared to those who are closer to the average response time of 69 days. Finally, and this is concerning, only 45% of the companies polled had an incident response plan in place. I'm delighted to have today with me Marcus Lasfo, Vice President of Incident Response TrueSec. He's coming to us from Sweden. And Morten von Seelen, Vice President of the TrueSec Group, who is coming to us from Denmark. These two gentlemen are absolute experts who have extensive and hands-on experience in dealing with major cyber attack incidents. So we are truly honored and grateful to have them here for this discussion. Welcome, Marcus. Welcome, Morton. Thank you very much. Thank you. So before we dive into the details, folks, please share with listeners some of your professional journey highlights. Marcus, would you like to get started? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, it feels like IT and cybersecurity nowadays is the the only thing I know. It's the the thing that I've been working with my whole life, uh, and even since early school. So it's like thirty years now. So I, I guess that I worked with uh, cybersecurity while it was you know in the old days just called IT security. So that that's what I do. I've been working with very hands on. I was part of the Microsoft's rapid response team. I built that in, in was part of building that in Europe, uh, covering Europe, Middle East, and Africa, which meant that, uh, well, whenever one of Microsoft's major customers had an issue, uh, my phone rang and Bill Gates got an email at the same time telling that we're sending Marcus on site. And uh, I was not allowed to be more than one hour away from an airport at any time. So it was a lot of traveling, a lot of late hours or 24-hour work at some times. Yeah, a few days at home uh, recovering and then off to the next. So that's kind of my background. But nowadays, it's more about a transition into more of a management role. 
where I built the, the True Six Incident Response Team uh, and leading that, which is a team of uh, right now 43 uh, full-time employees who only work with incident response and nothing else. We're covering uh, doing roughly 200 incidents per year all over Europe, Middle East. Uh, well, Europe, I would say primary Europe and the US, a uh, few outside of that area. Wow. Amazing. Amazing experience. Thank you for sharing. What about you, Martin? Thank you, David, and thank you so much for inviting us here. My name is Morten, and I'm coming here from a cold Aarhus today, where we have the rains all over. But my journey started as a software engineer, uh, rolling crypto for smart meters and having fun uh, behind my desk alone most of the day, uh, but slowly realized that I needed more action. Smart meters are fun, but they're not that much fun after some years. So I dived into being a consultant. I worked with Big Four, uh, mainly as an offensive security, penetration tester, red teaming. That was my speciality back then, OT equipment. Um, started doing training for incident response because I thought it was nice knowing what the blue teams and the, the incident responders were doing. And had the opportunity uh, to join one of the major cases of NotPetya. So NotPetya was my first major incident response case. And I guess that was, that was a good start and got me hooked. Moved into the IR team with, with, within this company, and, and it's, it's, as the big four is quite a big opportunity to work on the big cases. We normally say we worked on all the big cases in, on, on the front lines in Denmark, you know, the headlines, catching the headlines in the newspapers in Denmark. And that, that really gave me the energy to continue my journey uh, first as a, as a responder and then later on as a manager and leading the teams during these engagements. Uh, jumped out one and a half year ago and started up two second Denmark. Uh, we started out three people, uh, three technical experts, and today we are forty-five specialists in Denmark. Fantastic! And yeah, and focusing uh, just like Marcus, we have a, a instant response uh, employees here working under Marcus and offensive. Uh, SOC and other a lot of other capabilities within the company. That is fascinating. It's not often that I have guests who are so focused in one particular area. So, and that's how I see both of you. You are incident response focused individuals, which is terrific. Maybe we want to start by giving listeners, because we have a wide spectrum of listeners. There will be experts who, you know, connect with IR teams or engage with IR teams. And then there are others who want to know more about it just from an awareness standpoint. So would you like to enlighten the audience, the listeners, of what incident response means and why is it important? I think that's a good, a great way to start with it because incident response is, first of all, uh, if I call it the new black. Everyone claims they do it, both the, the MSPs, the, the normal IT the companies, and then we have the, the specialized companies like we do. And on top of that, incident response can mean so much. Everything from a SOC who's looking into a, an incident of a, like a, a leaked credential or someone installing some bad software or clicking on a phishing mail, that's usually called an incident. That's incident response. What we do is, if I call it major incident response, which means that we usually do breach response uh, where there is a confirmed breach. Uh, it can be a full ransomware case. Uh, it can be that you have a, a live threat actor in the environment. So it's, I would say, more than just looking at the, at the SOC alerts, uh, even though that they are 
important as well. Yeah, Martin, do you have anything to, to add to that? Yeah, I think one of the, the key differences of, of how we work with uh, rapid response or incident response in TrueSec compared to many other places and companies I work with is the focus on recovery. Like with a lot of the work we do, of course, we have the classical forensics, diving into log files, finding the bad guys and throwing them out. But as we're working for businesses, our focus is mainly on reestablishing in a secure way the, the business operations. And I think the model uh, Marcus has been building around his team, where you have the infrastructure experts and network experts and all the backup people working together in such a quick pace, it's just amazing. I just had a, a ransomware case in Denmark this week where three days in and out, like recovering a company, bringing it back offline, and then you leave it to the, uh, the restore team or the improvement team afterwards. They can take care of, I guess, the rest. But Three days in and out, like, that's so impressive. And that's, I see it as the reason is, is because of the team, the, the different skill sets in the team, and just having a lot of practical experience. Very interesting that, that in three days, you were able to get out of that situation and transfer over control to, to the organization to continue the recovery. So based on that experience and similar other experiences, what would you say are the characteristics, the components of an effective incident response plan? Maybe I will rephrase the question because you guys are people that are contacted by companies who've had a major breach and then you go in to do damage control. You definitely have a perspective on how prepared was that company. Can you share your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we have a couple of different kind of customers. We have, first of all, the insurance customers. Uh, we're working with a lot of insurance companies and are on the panels, which means that whenever uh, one of their customers are, are calling, drop everything and try to help them. Uh, on top of that, we have all those customers who have a retainer with us, uh, which we also help. Uh, then we have the, our own SOC customers. None of them have had a major breach, luckily, so far, but sometimes we do minor investigations for them. And on top of that, we also have the, if I call it off the street, companies that we have no relationship with since before calling us. And we do everything, as I mentioned before, from where someone is having a, a threat actor in the environment or that someone has uh, possibly clicked on a phishing mail and they know that they have uh, leaked credentials. Uh, but if we talk about the, the big stuff, the, the ransomware cases, that's the most exciting and, and devastating things. I would say that, the, the, first of all, the, the case that Mortra mentioned about three, three days, uh, I mean, that's, that was a fairly small case. And it, it was, uh, it's, it's usually not that fast. If we talk about the industry average, uh, they talk about the fact that it usually takes about three weeks. If you get hit by a ransomware case, you're usually down for three weeks. 21 days on average. That's where we were at for a couple of years ago as well. When we helped the customer, it usually took us about two to three weeks until the company was back up and running. But we realized at that time that, okay, this is taking too long. Uh, the customers are suffering too much. It's too expensive uh, for the customer because every day counts, every hour counts. So uh, we challenged ourselves and said, okay, um, when we go in and help a customer, let's try to do it in, in two weeks. And when the, the team was like, Marcus, you're crazy. That's not possible. Uh, when we hit the two weeks, I challenged them again and said, okay, let's do it faster. 
And now we're usually able to get the business critical applications and systems up and running within five to seven days. And then the rest of the systems the, the week after. So that's how we do it. That's back to the fact that, as Martin said, that we are focusing heavily on uh, recovery from day one, from the first hour. We're focusing on that and, and trying to make sure that uh, everything that we do from the forensic wise, uh, Everything that we do is to bring the customer back operational as, as fast as possible. And that brings me to your real question about the, the preparedness. There are a couple of different things that kind of affects that. Of course, it's how prepared the customer is in the form of if they have secure and safe backups that we can use, uh, that's, that, that helps. In other cases, we have to you know, break the encryption, uh, recover data in other ways, which takes longer time. Even though restoring from backups is always taking a lot, lot, lot longer than the customer actually thought they would. But yeah, we can see how prepared a customer is. But in most of the cases, they are either totally unprepared or they're not prepared in the right way. If I put it to say that, Martin, you you have a great saying that you're going to help me out with in a few seconds about the fireman. But. In a lot of cases, the customers are too detailed in, this, in, in their plan. If they have a good plan, it's too detailed. They can't cover all the aspects and they haven't thought about everything. So the plan fails anyway. That brings us to, to Morten's uh, saying. And we, we were just joking about that some of the clients are really diving into, with great intent, they're diving into preparing an incident like they were a professional incident response team. So like preparing for triage and collection of, of locks and all of these, like they're really diving into all the details. And then when Marcus's absolute team of specialists comes in, they look at the paper, say, thank you so much, have a nice day, and they move on and don't really use the papers anymore. It's not because the papers is not, it's just, you don't work that way. Like It's like when the house is on fire and the firemen's arrive, ready to go put out the fire, and the guy in the door giving them the papers and like, this is how to put out the fire in my house. Like, I guess the firemen appreciate the effort, but it's not really, it, they don't need it. And, and the same thing with it. Like, I know Marcus had an experience with some of my Danish clients where he, the client just told him, please just restore our company. And that's some of the best cases we have. Like we have all the IT administrators for a short period of time taking over everything in the company, restoring it, securing it, kinking out the bad guys, and, and just bringing it back to the company. And that's some of the fastest assignments we have. So I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't prepare for it. Just just do it in, to the right level, to the right extent, and don't overdo it. Spend your time on something else. Yeah, and it's mostly about deciding who takes which kind of decisions and how to operate during an instance, not in on the detail level about what should be done, because that's so different depending on the incident. So when we come in and help a customer, it's a lot about the, the experience that we bring to the table, that we have seen things before, that we know where to do to take the shortcuts, where to exp- especially not take any shortcuts, and how to do things. That's basically on our playbooks. That is very interesting. Almost sounds like you are better off having customers who don't have a detailed plan because their incident response plan may not align with how you all like to operate. So let's say I'm a potential customer and I'm interested 
in hiring your services. And I ask you all, from our end, what should we be doing to help you do your job better when a breach happens? If I were to ask that question as a potential customer, how would you respond? A couple of different things. One is uh, preparedness in the form of having the right log files and log shipping. So that kind of helps us. During an engagement, having the log files will help us give you the answer of what's been going on in your environment. When we don't have the log files, it's so much harder. Uh, then we have to start looking in, at other things, which takes more time, which sometimes does not provide the, the, the answers at all. Then we have to start guessing. So we will help you define what kind of log files and where to store the, the logs. On top of that, we will also need a way to connect into your environment because a lot of the incident response engagements that we do are done remotely. Uh, we are super happy to send people on site, but most of the incidents nowadays works really well doing it remotely. The only time we feel that we need to send someone on site, that's when you're not listening. When you, Dave, are panicking, and not listening to our advice or starting to make your own calls, that's when we feel that we need to send someone on site or a team on site to work with you and be in the same room and make sure that you don't do things that will slow down things or cause more issues. And on top of that, we will also try to make sure that your upper management, your board and CEO understands this, this situation. Because the worst thing that can happen is when the board starts to, to put pressure on the CEO, who in his turn or her turn start to put pressure on the, the management below and further down, that spirals fast downwards. Uh, that's never a good thing. Um, because the best thing that the leadership team can do is to give the incident responders and the IT department the support and room to do their job. Uh, and and not expect to have you know status meetings every thirty minutes or every two hour because that kind of does not give us time to to work and actually produce stuff and make sure that we can we proceed. Martin, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, the alignment of expectations is just important. We always go when we have new retainer clients, as we call them, people who have a retainer with us with an SLA. Go out there and have a talk with them and the leadership about what. So what would happen if you call us? Like, of course, we will come, guns placing, ready to help. There's also something we expect from you. Like, we will give you updates, but we will not be able to give you, like, in X amount of minutes, your business will be back online. So just preparing them for chaotic situations. And then a lot of our retained clients also get threat intelligence feeds, and we try to feed them with the best things we can so they are prepared, telling them to Look out for the classical, we call it the five horsemen of ransomware, uh, like the top five mistakes we see companies are making or that they didn't prioritize in time before they got hit. So trying to advise them into this. And I know we, we might have another talk uh, about this coming up, but I'll save that for there. But, but just giving our retained client the best opportunity they can to prepare and then feeding them with the intelligence they need about what kind of groups are attacking them right now. So the Akira group right now is targeting some of the companies in Denmark. So what are their methods? And, and just sharing that with them so they, they can take their precautions. And on top of that, we also advise our customers to make sure that they identify and the key personnel on their side. 
and try to reduce the uh, the signal point of failures uh, in in personnel, as we call it. Um, because in every incident, when we come in and start working, we we work usually around the clock uh, to get the the business operational and up and running again. After a few hours, we start to see a, a pattern. There is one person who has the answers to everything and who everyone points to, and that person is the single point of failure. And because he is usually, it's usually a he who, who has been working at the company the longest, who knows everything. He is the go-to guy for everything. And after a few days, he will be totally exhausted and in a couple of cases burned out and have ended up in the hospital. And that causes us major issues because suddenly the, the, the one person who had information and an idea about things is gone and that slows down. So that's why it's so important in advance to find those per, that person and make sure that you have more than one person to, who can help out and, and answer questions. Fair enough. This is very valuable information for organizations that are striving to be organized and prepared. Switching gears, Marcus and Martin, some other questions that come to mind are the different roles uh, associated with major incident response engagements. And how do you build a team to handle these engagements and how you retain the talent? Yeah, from our point of view, we have the team on our side and we have the team and the roles at the customer side. So if we start with the team on our side, what we do in a, in a major incident, we will appoint one or, or multiple incident managers. In our case, the incident manager is like, they don't like when I call them that because it's not true, but like a very advanced project manager. I mean, our incident managers, they, they are like in the 50s. Uh, they have been working as CISOs and advisors for ages, and they have a lot of you know, management experience and so forth. So it's evil when I call them project managers. But, but they are kind of the glue. They are, they are the, the, the ones who have the coordinate the, all the efforts from the, from the TrueSec side, from the incident response side, and talk with the customer's management, make sure that everything progresses. They, they, they remove all the blockers. They, they, they have status meetings several times per day with the customer, with the team. They, they do all of that organization and make sure that we uh, meet the goals. And they are a, a key role in our incident response team. Uh, they are leading the whole incident. So they are an incident manager. On top of that, of course, we have the forensic team who tries to figure out what has happened. Uh, is the threat actor still in the, in the environment? Have they placed any backdoors? Uh, do they have persistence? Uh, have they stolen any data? If, I would say that in most of the cases, uh, ransomware cases, we find evidence on stolen data. You just have to, to look for it. And then, as we mentioned before, we have the recovery team who from the first minute starts looking into, okay, how can we bring this environment back up and running as fast as possible without jeopardizing anything? It can be that we bring extra hardware on site to build a new environment on. Uh, it can be that we start looking into backups. Uh, yeah, it's, we can do a migration to the cloud. We do, it's like people have been working with IT infrastructure uh, for the for 20, 30 years. Uh, they are really senior and this is what they love doing. And on top of that, we have all the specialized roles. It's like reverse engineering. Uh, when we get hold of the, of the malware, we, we try to figure out, okay, what has this done? How is the encryption being do, done by the ransomware? We have our um, 
crypto experts who look into that encryption to see can we break it. Uh, we have written a couple of uh, decryptors that were published together with uh, Europol at the No More Ransom site. So public uh, decryptors for, for some ransomers, or it was a family of ransomers uh, who used the same uh, encryption flaw. We have our networking guys who help the customer with uh, rerouting the network, uh, creating isolation, containment, work with the firewalls. Uh, we have so many different specializations who all have experience working with incident response and know what's, what needs to be done. And on the customer side, we need to, have, of course, have the management to talk with, someone who, who can take the, the quick decisions, uh, who knows the environment. But we rely heavily on the customer's IT staff because they know all the stuff. We, can only, we only know so much. And for what we can help out with is, is the, the basic infrastructure. But on top of that, you have all the line of business applications, uh, the specialized applications, everything that we have kind of never seen or heard of. So we need to work closely with them, as well as their IT providers, their MSPs, uh, and various different per- persons that we, that we need. So it's not uncommon that we work with and lead the work for like 200 people during an incident. Sometimes we might have five from TrueSec. Sometimes we have 40 people from TrueSec. It all depends on the size of the customer engagement and how fast we yeah, can work, basically. Following up on what you just shared, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see customers making? I would say that, first of all, that they don't call a... Uh, this sounds like promotion. I, I'm not meaning it that way, but it's about not bringing in external help when needed. They, they think that they can handle it by themselves, or they think that they're normal MSP, their normal IT provider can help them, but they don't have the expertise and knowledge and know-how. The other one, they start restarting or shutting down servers and clients, uh, which removes uh, both evidence and valuable information from the memory of the computers. I mean, in a lot of cases, we have been able to extract the decryption keys from RAM from a server to be able to decrypt the server without paying ransom. But if you have rebooted that server, that information is gone, then we're not able to do that. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's things like that. Uh, another thing is that a lot of customers think that this is a great opportunity to redesign and implement new things. Our experience is that this is the worst possible case at the time to do those changes. Uh, because if you have a full ransomware case and you want to bring your environment up and running as fast as possible, um, we need to focus on that. We will do improvements that we deem safe uh, and that will help. But we have had customers who think that, okay, now, let, now is a great opportunity to implement micro segmentations in the network layer. We have said no, and they decided to do it anyway. And that kind of delayed the whole implementation or bringing back things with several days because it will take so much more time than they think every time. Or all the customers who think, okay, now is a good opportunity to, instead of restoring our old Active Directory, Let's make a new one. And they don't realize and think about all the dependencies because from a technical point of view, it sounds easy enough and it will be nice to have something new and fresh, but they don't understand all the dependencies uh, and they don't think about that. So it, it will always take a lot longer. So it's better to do those, to get things up and running right now and then start the improvement projects. I also okay. see many, many of the customers who start communicating too early. Mm-hmm. So you'll have the most bad things show up early and late. 
So you were hit by ransomware. That's a bad thing. Then you try to communicate something. Uh, of course, you, you might need it by, by law to communicate early. Uh, now, even more are required to do it early. Yeah. But not being able to communicate the right thing is, is such a hard thing because you will not know the, the impact of the breach. Most of the time, as I said, the, the bad thing shows up last. So it will be in the end of the forensics. They will say, oh, we found this evidence of data exfiltration. I, in my experience, it never shows up as a blinking lamp in the beginning. You need to identify the IP addresses. You need to identify the servers. It, it's never easy to identify the data exfiltration. But if you start the communication too early and if you're too brave in your communication, especially if you're a registered company and you have to withdraw your previous statement just because you're too eager and say, we don't see any compromise of data. And then later on, we find those five gigabytes of data exfiltrated. That, that's just bad. So it's being too brave in the communication too early and not taking in advice for, for people who made the mistakes before. Uh, I guess that's a mistake we see quite often. If, if you try to run the communication yourself, you also tend to fall into to some of the, the pitfalls of using the, the wrong words or maybe being too bold in your statements about not being compromised. And then all of a sudden, all the data shows up in a leak site. That tends to hurt at least the stock price quite hard, but also like the brand rep and reputation of the given company when you have a statement bold just the day before. And we had uh, more cases than I can remember where we had bold statement in the press, and then later on, everything was disclosed online because they didn't pay the ransom, or they disclosed it anyway just to show it. So it's quite hard. And we also see bold statements in the beginning of a ransomware where people say, we will not pay the ransom. And then mm -hmm. two weeks in, and they don't have any backup, they don't have any live data, we can't restore it, and they end up paying. And then the actors actually announce that they paid just to do the, <laughs> make the damage even worse. So it's just being in control of communication is such a vital part. That's also why we, we always have specialists in communication as part of the team, because it's, it's such a hard thing to do right. Your point is very well made. There has to be a lot of thoughtful deliberation where experts such as yourself are taken into confidence, input used to put together a plan, and then the plan should be rehearsed. That's what I would think would be a substantive approach towards incident response planning. That's yeah, what I'm inferring. Yeah, go for it. Now, well, we, we do help uh, our customers with uh, doing tabletop ex exercises where we take a scenario, usually one, one of the incidents that we've done in the, in the past couple of months uh, and, and say, okay, if, the, if you would have had this kind of incident, how would your plan have worked? And in most cases, it, it breaks within the first hours. Uh, or the first couple of steps, depending on how it's built, uh, because they have not thought about something. Morten's uh, five horsemen of ransomware is is uh, is a good topic where we talk about, for example, backups. Uh, we have had cases where yeah, the the threat actor wiped the the backup servers. Uh, the backups still exist, uh, but the servers are are wiped. So we need to install new backup servers to be able to restore. But the keys. To the backups, to the backups were stored in the backups. I mean, they don't, the, the customer does not have the keys to unlock the backups, which means that we have a problem. And, mm -hmm. and things like that is usually not covered by the incident response plans, but that's something that we address and find out during the tabletop exercises.
or or the fact that back to the fact about backups i mean uh, if you try if you do your restore operations and, and try that out i mean you usually restore a few files and okay that took us five minutes fine we that's fine when you need to restore 100 terabytes of data that's not going to take five minutes that's going to take days or weeks because that's the, the law of physics uh, if you need to restore data from the cloud then suddenly you are kind of affected by the bandwidth about the speed from your provider, things like that. Uh, so even if you have working backups, it's still going to take days to do a restore and start to get your systems operational. It's not something you can just snap with your fingers and be up and running again. I, it's actually funny you mentioned the, the one gaming thing. We had a, a, a war game session a couple months ago with a client where we brought dice in a, kind of like Dungeons and Dragons. We were rolling the die, deciding what systems to restore, and they rolled the exchange server and Active Directory, and the IT guy just looked at us like we kicked him or something. <laughs> he was like, oh, this is going to be a rough day. So we started restoring it, but we figured out it took like one day to actually re get the data transferred because the upload speed from the external backup was much worse than the download speed. So it was really it was so hard for them to sit in this meeting. It's like, yeah, we downloaded 10%, and now the wargaming session ends. But it's just a valuable learning that with a few, like write down your crown jewel systems and then try to do a restore, roll a die and try to do a restore. Or if you're the leader of a team, make it a Friday afternoon exercise. How fast can we restore an AD from the cold backup? Doesn't need to be boring or make it a competition or something. I like the, like the technical hands-on war games where you actually hunt for things, try to find something in the log files or... Like giving a, giving a challenge of uh, what user had the most failed logons attempts in July and going in there hunting for actual data. You don't need to find bad stuff. Just being used to being around the audit logs and stuff is really good. And then a way to practice your backup like this is always good. Just remember to do it from the cold backup, not the image backup that you have lying right next to the server, because that's going to be compromised day one. But the real cold backup you have in storage or somewhere, that's the place you want to you want to restore from. Yeah, and on top of that, also try to do that on a Friday afternoon, calling your MSP, asking for their help to set up new servers and do a restore, because suddenly your SLAs are not covering that. And they say, well, it's Friday afternoon. We have gone home. We, we cannot start doing this on Monday. Is that acceptable? Very true, very true. In fact, I was going to bring that point up that when you are called into action, your customer probably works with one or more service providers. Now, you not only have to coordinate with your direct customer, but also with their business partners. That adds another layer of complexity, the extent to which those relationships, those mechanisms of communication can be worked out ahead of time, the better. One more thing I want to pick up on you talked about tabletop exercises, and that's something that organizations are known to do. But you also said that tabletop exercises may not be good enough because you might just try backing up for a short period of time and you're trying to you know, kind of check your restoration facility, but you didn't really do the hard test where you back up or, or you recover or restore the entire set of files, which could be in the petabytes. So am I hearing this correct, that 
it is really important to have almost like a security drill where you put to test the recovery plan or response plan in great detail, like, you know, put it through an extreme test as opposed to a superficial test. Both, both yes and no. It, it might mm-hmm. not be practical because mm-hmm. a lot of Casper yeah. does not have like a petabyte of free storage to mm-hmm. do a restore mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we can do is, the, the, the first thing, the most important thing is to, to bring in a, a person or persons who have real life experience from working with cases because they will know all the problems that they have seen and run into the past couple of months uh, or years. So it will not be a theoretical uh, only theoretical uh, exercise. Uh, on top of that, what we usually do is that we restore like a one or two ter- gigabytes of data or terabytes of data, depending on uh, what we have, the possibilities, and then calculate, okay, so if we had to restore uh, one per- petabyte, how long would that, that have taken? Uh, so it might not be necessary to restore all of it, but it's it's more about getting the, having the mindset and an understanding that, okay, if we would have had to do this, how long would it have taken? And what are the dependencies that we need? But it's all about having the real-life experience and utilizing that in the exercises. We see a bit too many cases where you have like a, a crisis co- communications company or crisis com- company who do the exercises, and they have no technical knowledge. They, they only follow some kind of rule book or guidebook about how to do it and, and play it out. And this is where I want you all to enlighten inform the listeners that they, when they go out looking for real expertise, what, you know, how should they go about finding who can really help them when they need the help? Does that make sense? Yeah. Just as an, as an input here, I think look for battle scars. You want the people who's been fighting it, ask for references, figure out the ones that's been doing, they should have been proving hundreds of records. They should be on the committees for the insurance companies. The insurance companies' vetting process, we, we, I guess we know it because we felt the pain. They go it through it rigorously, making sure that they have the quality. There's also, um, there's also common forums like FIRST and others where you have certified members who all commit to the same code of conduct and they work in a certain way, which is a quality stamp. But if you don't have, if, you, if you're a smaller company and don't have the money to go out and buy consultants and fancy yeah. shoes, I used to say, but you have someone in your network. Unfortunately, ransomware has been a poison to our networks for the last five years. So everyone knows someone who's been through it. Call them in, ask them, ask the, the IT manager in that company you know, ask them to come in and tell them, so how was it that you did it? What, what happened? How was your worst day? Uh, and, and share those experiences because they will say the same thing. Oh, yeah, the, our backup was lost and we couldn't restore and our, we needed extra hot drives and our, it was Friday afternoon. It's always Friday afternoon. Uh, but it's <laughs> just sharing these things. You don't, of course, it's always nice having, if you have it in your budget, find someone who can do the real training, set aside some time. But if you don't, just find someone with some battle scars and then have them share the experience and walk you through it. And you can do it in a, in a couple hours. And everything is better than nothing. True. Very true. So speak a little more on what kind of help can small companies get who don't have the budget? How should, what would be your advice to them in terms of staying prepared? Stay, stay. 
about staying prepared for a smaller company or any company at all is about uh, not being hit. It's all about, you know, uh, patching, uh, minimize exposure to the internet of internet facing uh, servers. I mean, you should not expose uh, your terminal services uh, to, to, to internet, for example, not plain RDP. You should implement multi-factor authentication on all external uh, facing services. Uh, it's it's all those hygiene, IT hygiene things that we've been talking about for the last, I don't know, five, 10 years. There is no magic bullet, especially stop buying new products that you think will solve your problems because it's all about utilizing what you have. I mean, you can basically have a basic Microsoft or, or Google or AWS environment without any additional third-party solutions and be secure and safe. It's just about using what you have and then making sure that you have the staff who can actually handle it. Excellent. Very good to hear. Martin, I, I would say, just, yeah, just as an input here, I would just say please. training. Yeah. Ma- making sure that the, the, the IT staff are notoriously under-trained. So I came from big four, which are heavily regulated and everyone, especially in the audit part, had to do training all the time. And when we go into different sectors, they require training and documentation. Just talk about a pilot, how many licenses and and checkups they have to do. But we can easily have an IT domain administrator managing critical infrastructure who haven't been updated or trained the last 25 years. And I think Training is the key here. Being able to follow along, what, what's the new th- thing with, uh, with Microsoft? Not h- hitting on Microsoft, but just catching up on the latest name is, is sometimes hard. And let along the latest security trends and, and being able to be trained and maybe even certified within the products, I think that's, that's overlooked uh, as, a, as a security method. We talk about products, but, but the people and the training of using uh, the systems they're already using. And I'm just not talking fancy courses weeks long, but maybe just a one or two day course or an online course. Most of the of the people we work with in Scandinavia are Microsoft companies, and they have great online training, and it's free. Like there's no reason not to set aside just an hour or something, make it as a training for the entire department. Let's go for maybe just some low level training and or making sure you know the new features of the new server. Uh, the new server version you're using. Just basic training really brings you a long way. And when it's free, then I think it's a no-brainer. And can I add one more thing is that uh, I did mention patching and the urgency of patching. At the time of the, the time when we're doing this recording, Citrix released roughly two weeks ago advisory that you should update and patch an urgent vulnerability in their software. We had a customer this week uh, who were hit by, by a threat actor who used that vulnerability. They told us, yeah, we did get an, a notice from Citrix uh, uh, two weeks ago that we should patch, but we'll be waiting for our Citrix administrator to come back from vacation. So you don't have time for that nowadays. When there's something urgent, you have to take care of it right away. Very true. Very true. Well, I hope people pay heed to what you're saying, because this is very important information. When I was reviewing some industry reports, one survey finds that while only 45% of the companies polled had an incident response plan in place, 79% of the companies have insurance. So they're almost implying that many companies could be of the opinion that let's not worry about the incident response plan. If we have a good insurance, we are covered. Can you dispel that myth? 
Martin, do you want to go first? Yeah. Now I have, of course, we have a large part of our uh, of, of our portfolio is from insurance, and we're covering, I would say, like half of the, the insurance contracts we have in Scandinavia. Is my guess right now. Like we have so many co- insurance companies we're covering through the contract. That's also why we could grow a company in Denmark from three to forty plus in in a year because we just as soon as we opened, we had all the contracts and response plans. So our biggest trouble were to hire people. In reality, I see the insurance clients as much, much more uh, secure than others. Every time I see like an interview with some of the clients that, about insurance, it's always bi- heavily biased because if you are able to obtain and cyber insurance, you are much more secure than others. And I know like many of, of the insurance companies require you to have some kind of plan. Like you, you can't even sign up to at least half of the ones we're covering, maybe even more if you don't have it. And that's not because the, the insurance company requires it. That's because all the way the insurance industry works with all the syndicates and requirements from Lloyd's and all of these, like the big wheels of insurance, how they work. So you have like these overreaching requirements and one of them is having a plan. And then we can discuss how much detail you should put into the plan uh, but I, I see the insurance clients are much more secure in general, and I see them do way better when we approach them. They are faster to to recover, not because they are insured, but because they are often more mature and they've done some they've done some drills before because they were in a process of actually obtaining the cyber insurance. And we see a lot of in in the market of cyber insurance, at least in Scandinavia, we see a lot of of movement where a lot of people talking about the insurance are more expensive. We just see the insurance actually requiring more documentation for security. So if you have a, a mature security, we see the premiums actually go down on, on some of the clients. But a lot of people experience the prices are going up. And that's, I believe, some, uh, many of the insurance companies being aware of what to look for. In Scandinavia, we have insurance companies requiring active scanning of infrastructure for vulnerabilities and active directory configurations. And and I know in the US, you have even more requirements and external scannings and and all of these discovery tools as part of the insurance. So I believe that when it comes to the insured clients, they are in a much better place than many of the other ones. I don't believe that you obtain security by buying an insurance. You It's a risk mitigating factor. You're not more secure. Uh, but being able to obtain it, it requires level that, that most small companies are not available, are, are not able to do right now. Spot on. That's fantastic. That's so true. I think that covers all of it. Mm-hmm. I don't have much to add to that. Okay. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, so essentially, the fact that 75% of the companies or whatever stats I shared has insurance suggests they are prepared. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to get the insurance. So that's a good reality check from an incident response plan perspective. So that is one easy way of measuring and monitoring the effectiveness of an incident response plan. This has been a great discussion. Before I let you go, I have a couple of slightly different questions. When I hear you speak, you speak from hands-on experience from experience of helping companies recover from major attacks. That must be a very satisfying kind of a job, a very exciting job. But I guess no job is perfect. It has its ups and downs. There are many 
folks who are listening in and who are trying to either pivot or there are students who are thinking of a cyber career and they are wondering if they should consider a career working for a company such as yours, please share with them what's exciting, what's interesting, what are some challenges, what kind of mindset and skills one needs to have to pursue a career in incidents response plan and incident response actions. Oh, Dave, you're, you're ending with the best question. And I mean, we could have a whole episode on, on just <laughs> that. So you, you're going to have to cut me short on this one. But I totally agree with you. I mean, working with incident response is the most satisfying and fun and challenging thing that we have ever done. I mean, we love being able to help and support companies. Uh, I mean, we know that if we can't save this company, it will go bankrupt. It, it can go down. And that means that people lose their jobs. So we know that everything that we do really matters. That's kind of what drives us and makes this fun. And also, I, I say fun because it is fun for us in the way of, of helping, supporting, and also challenging in the way that every incident is, is different. We have never had two different incidents that are the same because all the IT environments are so, so diverse and, and different in every possible way. As I mentioned before, I mean, a lot of our team, they have been working with IT for 20, 30 years, and they all say that this is the most fun and challenging thing that they've ever done. Uh, one of the, uh, the guys is uh, a Microsoft MVP. That's an honorary title, title that you get. He has been a Microsoft MVP for like 15, year, 15 years. And he says that, Marcus, the best thing with incident response is that I can use my 30 years of experience in every case. I mean, Sometimes we have to use our experience from, you know, it's not that long since we had an uh, NT4 server that we had to recover. And yeah, we, we used to work with that for 20 years ago. And uh, we can use that knowledge. Uh, Active Directory, cloud, we have to work with the latest. We have to work with the older stuff. Uh, we have to make up new, new exciting solutions. Uh, we have to write our own tools, script solutions to bring the customers back faster. Uh, we have to make some things that sometimes are unsupported, but we know that it's the fastest way to, to get things up. Some of the, the, the inputs I give students when we mm -hmm. talk to them about how to go for mm -hmm. IR is yeah. don't aim for IR. Aim for a company who does IR, but also does something more entry-level friendly. So when we have, I, I have tons of young talent in, in my part of the company say, I want to do IR something. That's good. Let's talk about that in five years. So right now you're going to do pen testing, infrastructure, and SOC work, because I want you to know the basics of the Windows event logs. I want you to know the basic of network infrastructure. I, I want you to know IT uh, and you have and, to see- and enterprise hundreds, IT. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hundreds of companies, like the real world, not the university world, where you have five old XP machines and that's what you need to restore. This is sometimes 500 devices, different configurations, and nothing is managed the way you thought and nothing is by the book. So having that experience, like every incident responder, when you say the word printers, they will flitch. That's because the experience of getting the printers up and running again after it's always a hassle. And that experience comes just years of experience, how to work with them and, and all the different technologies. So don't aim for IR in the beginning, aim for something else and then build your career towards that. Very good. Very good. This is phenomenal. So uh, folks, we, are, we will be concluding shortly. I keep saying that, but we keep going. 
But if I were to summarize my takeaways from this discussion with you all at a very high level, they are for organizations, of course, be proactive, get insurance, because that's going to force you into a discipline that's going to be good for you. Go and find the real experts who have scars, as you pointed out, or battle scars, who have extensive experience. Involve them when you create a plan, when you test the plan, so you know that you are being advised by people who really know what this is all about. So those are my three high-level takeaways. But I always like to conclude the episode with final thoughts and messages from my guests. So please. I would like to add one more to that list, and that's to not use your normal MSP during a breach investigation. Uh, because we have seen too many cases where customers have been, have been using their normal MSP to, to get help, and they don't have the right expertise and know-how. And in a couple of cases, they are the ones who have been at fault, who have been the reason for the breach. And of course, they have tried to hide that by removing the log files or drawing the wrong conclusions or bluntly lying so they don't end up with a, with a breach of contract and things like that. So bring in a uh, third party to do the audit, uh, the, the assessment and investigation. I guess the, the last tip from me would be if we were in, in talking about insurance, and, and if you are in, a, in a, such a lucky state or if you work that hard, you are able to obtain an insurance. And right now you might be looking into the budgeting for next year ask the insurance what they think you should focus on. Like they literally have the money on the line of you being secure and they will tell you what matters to them. And I bet you they will not tell you to do more paperwork. They will tell you to do some actionable things based on the incidents they see. So I think there's a, a much value in the insurance. Uh, the, the broker will know you. They know you, they know your company. Ask them for a priority if you have one. Fantastic, folks. Thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure. And I'm looking forward to recording a sequel with y'all. Thank you, Thank Dave, you for having us. And thanks for the, uh, the audience listening. Thank you. A special thanks to Marcus Lasfork and Morton Von Seelen for their time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization. 